queerness has forced me to wrestle with scripture, to say, why do I care about this? And, and what are the ways that I'm reading this? And to say, wait a second, we all have a way that we're reading this and we just didn't know it before. My name is Jonah. I'm a pastor, activist, community organizer, and follower of Jesus. I love the Bible, but I've been told it doesn't love me back. Enter the peacock. An ancient symbol of abundance, the peacock is more than beautiful. It serves as a guard animal around the world because it eats poisonous spiders and snakes. How does it survive? Peacocks can break down poison, get to the good stuff, and emerge fed and strengthened. Some say this is how the peacock gets its beautiful iridescent feathers. Join me and my guests as we read the Bible in the spirit of the peacock. Re-encounter nourishing scriptures that have been poisoned by hate and ignorance. Break down toxic theology and get to the good stuff. Emerge fed and strengthened with a beautiful iridescent faith. Welcome to Jonah and the Peacock, a podcast about poison, healing, and the Bible. Hey everybody, it's Jonah here, and welcome to today's episode with J.J. Warren. J.J. is known as the prophet in pink in some circles because of the pink sport coat he's known to wear when he's speaking in public and doing his good public theology and ministry. He is a United Methodist and a seminary student at Boston University, but he was catapulted into the spotlight in the UMC at General Conference, which is a global Methodist gathering, um, a couple of years ago when he was sent as a youth delegate. And he got just three minutes to speak on the floor at this conference, um, and he spoke so passionately about LGBTQ affirmation in the denomination's legal code um, that that people really, really started to, to sit up and take notice of this um, really talented rising star in the church. Because there's an ongoing controversy, if you're not aware, um, in the United Methodist Church about whether queer people should be included in the life of the church, in the blessings of the church, and specifically in the leadership of the church. And so for queer-identified young leadership like JJ, um, this, this controversy really is about whether or not there is room for queer people in the communities of the church and, and, and spiritual communities of God. Um, the United Methodist Church is not unique in having these controversies, but it is a little behind in terms of large denominations in the United States. And uh, there is this ongoing question that a lot of us have. Um, the United Methodist Church is also my denomination. And a lot of us are asking the question, is it worth it to stay? Uh, why, why are we trying to reclaim space in this established church uh, that that may not want us. And so why would we bother with these hierarchies? But fundamentally, those are the same questions that this podcast is asking about scripture. Why do we still mess with the Bible? Why do we even give it all of this attention? Is this worth reclaiming? And the implicit answer of this podcast is yes, it is worth reclaiming. And actually it is holy and good and has been co-opted by and for evil. Um, but it is an incredibly powerful tool for transformation personally, um, communally, and, and spiritually. And so JJ, you know, is a big advocate for that same perspective on the established church. And you know, his, his journey, um, is really what we get into as an aspiring pastor in a denomination that's truly ambivalent about his existence and leadership, um, his authority, even though he's got this demonstrated gifting, calling, passion, and talent. So you'll hear us talk about some kind of technical details of United Methodism. One is the distinction between ordination and being licensed to do ministry. Um, that may seem like a kind of a weird quibble. Ordination is a process by which the church affirms your call to ministry. Um, in the United Methodist Church, it takes particularly long, about seven years. Um, it's, it's often much faster in other denominations. But, um, but the UMC also has another option, which is to become a local licensed pastor. It's quicker, it takes uh, fewer qualifications, there's less prestige and less protection, um, but you also have less hierarchy to navigate. And so uh, JJ and I have taken separate 
strategies, different strategies to doing ministry. He's going full ordination and saying, hey, queer people should be allowed to get ordained and I'm going to advocate for that and settle for nothing less. And I have said, uh, forget y'all. I'm too busy doing ministry to mess with your hierarchy. I'll get the license uh, to do the bare minimum of what I need. And and you can find me um, out in the streets and building the church. And so it's interesting to see these, you know, these various paths that queer identified people have taken to lead and shape and mold the church. Uh, anyway, JJ is such a, a, a bright star in the, in the constellation of the United Methodist church. And you can follow him, find him anywhere on social at, at it's me, JJ Warren. Um, he's also got a YouTube channel, JJ Warren, and that's JJ, the letters, you don't spell it out. Um, and he is also an author. Um, he wrote a book called Reclaiming Church, a call to action for religious rejects. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, and I hope it gives you some hope for the future of the church. pretty involved in like I mean you were like at general conference yeah have you been yeah that's another thing a youth delegate before um yeah I was a lay delegate in 2016 and 19 and then I'll be a lay delegate again in 2020 well 2022 whatever that is 2020 whenever we can get to it yeah yeah 20 question mark yeah (laughs) yeah so what um I mean, do you, are you passionate about that? Is it something that you feel obligated to do because you love the church or is it something that feels fulfilling to you to, to bring your power and leadership to? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I, I love the idea of the Methodist church. And I think like you already said, you know, we're called to this space, you know, for a particular reason and the spirits moving us. And, and I just, I love the idea of a church that is around the world that is democratic where, you know, in theory, the voices of lay people and clergy people are being heard and lay people and clergy people from around the world are making the decisions about our theology, are passing, you know, I'm reading a mission statement in class right now in my missions class, and it was adopted by the General Conference in 1988. And so like to know that lay people and clergy people from around the world are the ones shaping our theology, I think that's really powerful. And so, yeah, I, you know what? being part of the general conference is being part of that larger work of the church of how we be and do church as a global church. Yeah, that's very cool. And I, I, it's so interesting because like I've been a part of starting many different types of communities. I'm a church planter in Milwaukee, but I, you know, well before that I was like co-founding intentional living communities um, in Chicago and things like that. And I just was like, you know, the United Methodist church on paper is exactly the kind of organization that I would envision. This like overly bureaucratic, certainly, but like very idealistic, you know, like everyone has wisdom to contribute. Let's do things in this extremely democratic way um, and have lots of folks like co-discerning truth together, like sounds so beautiful. Um, And yet as I have, you know, sort of, been ushered into this world, um, I've, I've seen some of the ways that that can really work against us. Not the least of which is our, um, like how slow it is to make change. You know, the, the ELCA for instance is not a a terribly different denomination from the UMC. Um, and they had a painful process of, of becoming queer affirming as well, but it did happen you know, at this point, at least a decade earlier. Um, yeah. And I just wonder, like, I, I don't know. It's so funny because on the one hand, I feel really called into the UMC and on the other hand, I feel like I don't have the patience for it. I mean, are you like, I, I'm not a committee's kind of, kind of person. I'm like a, you know, send me out to the outskirts. I'll build something. We'll figure it out. Well, it'll be messy. We'll make it as we go. Um, but like, you must've like grown up in, committee meetings. 
Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And, and it makes me feel really good that there are people with that calling to go into the messiness <laughs> because, you know, that's, that's definitely not my calling. I think oh, yeah. I, I enjoy, I love having, you know, a group of people, all with different gifts. And I mean, this is probably, this is true in both settings, but I think like, for me, it's nice to know like, oh yeah, that's the person that's really good at dealing with messiness. And like, here's the person that's good with administration. And here's the person that's good at that. And like, let's come together and talk about how we're going to do these things together on this scale. And I don't necessarily have to be the one dealing with the messiness, but I'm, you know, I really enjoy convening groups of people and getting all these people together to talk. So I'm glad there are people that like messiness. This is beautiful. I'll hang out in the mud. You run the committee meetings. And this fundamentally is the idea of church, right? That like somehow we all come together with our various gifts and we figure something out. Um, But I, and I, I am so glad that you have love for the church because it's hard to have love for an institution that um, can't always figure out how to love you back well. Mm. And, um, and to fight to be loved is, is something that, um, that really none of us should have to do, but, but many of us do. Um, so have you like in that work, have you ever struggled with that? Um, the, the thing that you love, not loving you back and you having to be really a a teacher and an instrument of change in instructing the church, how to love you. Mm, Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah. I think that's, good and bad like it's it's so true and that's why it's good but it's it's bad because it's true and yeah yeah, you know what we're doing as united methodists staying in the institution because we believe that the voice of an institution whether we like it or not has power and that power can be used for good or for bad in the case you know of the united methodist church it's been bad for a long time in our relationship with queer people so yeah it's it's definitely been a struggle to have the voice of power in our church constantly tell us that you can't be a pastor, um, you know. And and even now, as I'm going through the ordination process, you know, my decom, my you know, the group that meets with us to say yes, we see a call with you. I've been in the same decom for five years now. Like wow. I I knew in undergrad that I wanted to be a pastor, and like I, I knew that was my calling. And this year, for the first time, you know since since I've been so public since general conference was the first time that they said you know the vote's not unanimous because yeah we can't all accept you wow yeah how did that how did that feel being in relationship for five years being um being a public leader in this institution to have your local leadership give you that message yeah it's a it's a very strange and very you know, in some ways disheartening because on the one hand, you know, I get to see the change around the world on the front lines often, you know, like I get to, before this pandemic, go to churches, you know, in California, in Arizona, in rural Wisconsin, right? Like yeah, Marinette. Here. Uh, yeah, I did. And, uh, and, and so for so long, you know, I've, I've gotten to see for the last two years that, that on the groundwork of people in these rural communities and cities doing the work of trying to understand sexuality and then to come home to New York to my home area and have folks still not understand and and not be willing to understand is difficult yeah 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 I mean I it's so interesting because we you know queer folks find a sense of not only survival but um but thriving purpose in a lot of different ways. And I think that for me, and maybe it is because I wasn't born into this institution, but I was, I felt called. I came in with a very um, uncompromising attitude around queerness of like, I'm queer and I'm trans and like get on board with it or don't. You can leave me alone if you don't want to affirm me, like that's fine, just let me do my work. Um, and, And it's been interesting in, kind of a mixed bag state like Wisconsin. Um, And I'm not pursuing ordination because I don't want to subject myself to those different, um, those different boards um, and bodies. But I, but that does mean that like, I have to rely on, the only reason that's functional is because I got very lucky to come into a DCOM that's extremely supportive. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
So I was called from Chicago into the Wisconsin annual conference to plant a church. And I, and I was just very upfront. And I said, you know, first of all, they wanted, they wanted to send me to, I don't know if this means anything to anyone who's not from Wisconsin, but they were like, you know, Wisconsin is a state full of small cities. We'll, you know, we could send you to Green Bay or Appleton. <laughs> God bless Green Bay and Appleton. They are not, they are not progressive bastions of like urban life. Um, and so I was like, I am queer, I am genderqueer, and I am a radical leftist. You don't want me in Appleton, Wisconsin. And to their credit, they were like, all right, you know, Madison or Milwaukee it is. And I was like, it's Milwaukee. Um, and I, I got connected to some local leadership who was willing to be radical and support a queer and trans church plant. Um, but I, but I then have kind of capped my, my foray into the United Methodist church at that district level to say, Hey, Mm. this local leadership has affirmed me good enough for me. It's gotten me in the door. It gets me to plant my church and, and I'm not going to go through those things. Um, but I also see so many of my queer colleagues saying like, you know, cause for me, the call was to church plant. And I was like, all right, checked enough boxes. Good enough. <laughs> Got the support. Yep. Um, and, and here we are. But when I talked to so many of my queer colleagues, part of their call, part of their articulated call from the spirit is to become ordained within the United Methodist church. Um, do you feel like that's part of your call? Is it, is it a means to an end or is it, you know, how, how wrapped up in that is that? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because the Methodist church, right. We have, we have this weird system where on the one hand, like in your case, in some sense, like being a local, are you a local pastor, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like in some cases that protects you. And also like in other cases, it totally doesn't. And like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's so unfortunate because I know someone here in New York, you know, who's a licensed pastor and they took her license away because, you know, because they found out that she was married to a woman. And so it's, and, and in some senses, like it would have been more difficult if she was ordained because then they'd have to go through the whole process of getting a counseling. And so it's, it's for me, being ordained is, is about, you know, we, we say like, right. You've heard this, like the, the calling to ordain ministry is to word service sacrament and order. And for me, you know, maybe it's because I'm like a white new Englander, but this idea of like attending to the order of the church just is really, you know, it's like the nerdiest and lamest and whitest vanilla part of the calling. Um, but that's really like, that's the part of the calling that I I'm really pushing into. And, and like, I'll just name that like, yeah, maybe, you know, as this white guy who like, has this privilege and isn't classic New Englander who likes structure. Like, what are some ways that one, I can both care for this structure and two, also listen to and invite in the other voices that do not look like me and don't have the privileges like me to to be part of recreating and reframing the structure as we go forward. So yeah, I think ordination is a part of my calling because it's it's that calling to the order of the church and for me reforming and recreating that order. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And and again, God bless because over here in the messiness where I like to camp out, I have nothing to offer the order, the order of the church that is the weakest part of my calling. Um I, I have a real commitment to the word. Um, and Mm -hmm. you know, of course that's one of the reasons that you're on the podcast today. What is your relationship to that? Is that a strong part of your calling as well? Or is it a little bit less prominent in your, in your calling the, 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 the call to, to the word and to preach the word? Yeah. And, and, Ooh, yes, you do. I love hearing your sermons (laughs) online. I love that y'all are online and getting to hear your word. And, and I think, you know, as much as I'm a vanilla New Englander. I'm also, I really do enjoy the word. And I, I love, um, you know, whenever I travel, I wear a pink sport jacket. Um, and and so that's become kind of my thing. And and trying to reclaim this idea of prophecy, right? Of, of that mm. prophets aren't just like 
some weird evangelical title or like some dead eighth century dudes like prophets are all around us like it's the activists in the street it's the people calling for change and and so my favorite tagline is the prophet in pink someone wrote on like facebook and like so i think that's like on the one hand calling to order but on the other hand the calling to the word is is the calling to make the word relevant as you do and and the calling to you know, use the word to speak life back into an institution, use the word to challenge the institution of the Methodist church in this case. And, and yeah, I think, you know, reclaiming scripture is so much a part of the work of reclaiming church, which is a catchy title. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Well, and, uh, you know, I think there's similar, there's similar questions there, right? Like why reclaim Mm. this, this um, text that has been so, uh, so deeply harmful to so many people, you know, why, why continue to, to put the faith in this thing to reclaim it in the first place rather than walking away? Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't think I noticed that parallel so much before. I, I appreciate that. Wow. Yeah. It's right. I think that's, it's so true. And, and for us queer people, I think, you know, our queerness has been a gift because it's forced me to wrestle with the way that other people read scripture. You know, I don't think my sweet hometown Methodist church, I don't think I really would have questioned scripture so much or or really dug in to say, well, okay, well, we're repeating God so loved the world in Sunday school, but like, what does that actually mean? Like, like mm. what does that mean for the way that we live our lives? And, and what does that mean for the way I read the rest of scripture? And you mean to tell me we all approach scripture with our own lens? Like what? And and so in a way, like queerness has forced me to wrestle with scripture to say, why do I care about this? And and what are the ways that I'm reading this? And to say, wait a second, we all have a way that we're reading this and we just didn't know it before. And that, I mean, I think that that's a very uh, particular viewpoint to hold. I mean, it's one that like mm. I sometimes take for granted because I need to. Um, but there are so many people who would say like, no, there is no viewpoint. Like the viewpoint is God's viewpoint, um, or whatever. I'm not, you know, I, I I don't want to be uncharitable to, to biblical literalists, but it it does sound kind of silly to me. Um, because I, you know, I studied philosophy and I studied epistemology and I'm like, okay, well, yeah, not all truth is like understood through the self. Um, but there are folks who would, who would argue with us about that. Um, you know, were you, was that something that was understood in your context growing up that we all come with our own lens or is that something that you had to learn in contrast to folks who were trying to limit interpretations of the Bible? Mm. You know, I think, I think a lot of it, Growing up, it wasn't necessarily part of my church experience. You know, no one of our old white male pastors said this, you're all reading this with a certain lens and you have to recognize the lens that you're reading through. Like, no, that that shit took me until seminary, right? To articulate yeah. it in that way. But but I think before that, I I was part of youth group and the Methodist church has our great, you know, council on youth ministries and and we had some cool radical old pastors that you know really were the hippie era and they they had us approach the eucharist as a celebration and like it was a space where we will we were able to experience uh, you know experiment um with the sacraments and experiment with worship and and that was the first time that i really you know was given some authority to play and and to get to interpret how we do worship and such and and so i think that really laid the the groundwork of of, of being able to say, wow, there's, we all do a bit of interpretation and an interpretation doesn't mean that the text is invalid, but an interpretation means that, right, we all are bringing something unique to the text and we're all taking something unique out of it. And it's really neat to see, you know, how all of our interpretations bring something new to the conversation and allow Christianity to continue to blossom and change and grow. Absolutely. It's always so weird to me to to like open this book that has, for instance, four stories, four versions of the same story told by four different dudes who are presumably 
in relatively similar social locations. Um, Mm. But the authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling really different stories, Um, even though it's the same information. It's that I feel like the text itself offers the beauty and validity of, of interpretation and of subjective storytelling. Um, and we lose mm-hmm. so much of that when we collapse it as though, you know, and, and so many people will do the work of trying to be like, oh no, these do complete. I know these genealogies are, are totally separate. However, <laughs> if you do some really strange math, uh, and some gymnastics and some origami, then it, it all works out to be perfectly sound. Um, but I, I think that, you know, the, the, the text offers itself as an example of how those perspectives are really beautiful. And, and of mm. course, you know that that's the function of this podcast is to try and understand, you know, how can various identities shape a perspective in a way that enlightens the text rather than reducing it by trying to give it one meaning. So I'm, mm. I'm very curious, you know, when you were examining your own, your own interpretation, your own lens, what are the things that contribute to that? Which parts of you do you think really shape how you read scripture? Ooh, I love that. Um, wow. I think, you know, a, a big part of the way that I read and interpret and ap- approach scripture is, is part of my wacky undergrad. You know, I, I went to Sarah Lawrence College, which is you know, classic liberal arts college and no majors. And I, for some reason, took a poetry class my first year. And and that developed into mostly studying creative writing and poetry and then religion. And, and so when I approached, you know, the scriptures from after taking these creative writing classes and poetry, it definitely changed the way that I approached it because now all of a sudden, I I was able to read scripture as a story, as a narrative and to say, wow, like what are the themes in here? And, and like you said, right. What, what is the importance of having two stories about the same events that don't match up? And like, from a narrative perspective, like that just doesn't make sense. And yet, but, but what does that do for us? Like, like how do these different narratives create space for us to talk about differences today? And, and so I think like a big part of the way I read scripture has come out of that creative writing lens and, and trying to really appreciate. I mean, whenever I read Genesis, I just imagine people around a campfire, like saying, and then God said, let there be. And then like, right. And then the fire roars and then, and then it's dark. And then they talk about the next day. And, and so it really takes on this story atmosphere. And then the other thing, you know, aside from storytelling that, that has shaped the way I read scripture is, is really my, my queerness, right? It's, it's like I said before, it, it, it forces me to challenge some assumptions that people have had, you know, of clearly, I, I think before I came out, maybe in high school and middle school, I would have agreed that there is a clear understanding of scripture. I mean, I didn't even grow up in a really conservative church, but like, that's, that's the mentality that I that I had growing up in this like classic vanilla Christianity was, you know, like we're reading the Bible. There's a meaning. Um, maybe it also means something for your life, but like there is a meaning. And coming out forced me to say like, you know, wow, there's not just one meaning because that one meaning, you know, some people think it says we can't be queer and like, I can't be married to a man. And, and yet, like when I approach the text further and like spend time studying Hebrew, like that's not what it says. And so all of a sudden, because of my identity as a queer person, I was put in contrast with the way that people were reading the text, which then made me go deeper into the text. So yeah, I think definitely my queerness has informed the way that I read it and approach it. Well, and I wonder about the intersection of those two things, right? The freedom mm. of storytelling and the confrontation between queerness and and kind of limited readings of scripture that kind of exposes um, the loss of a limited reading. Because similarly, like, I, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a nerd in my own right. Um, and I, I studied philosophy and studied... Um, like I took a very academic approach to the text for a while. I'm sure you're deeply immersed in this in your studies right now, 
But one of the first ways that I learned to push back against some of the more biblical literist interpretations that were taking things sort of, they would argue on their face, but I would say a lot of the readings were just a little shallow, was um, historical criticism. And I would say like, oh yes, well obviously there's an elaborate historical context here and taking it out of that historical context, you know, um, really transports the text into new meaning um, that is modern and therefore unworthy. Um, mm. And like, I think that, you know, the attempt there was to say this text is multi-layered, but, but the impact actually for me was like, I was like stripping away the possibility of modern interpretation. Um, but to approach the Bible as a piece of poetry or as creative writing, or, I mean, like I always, I always talk about the Bible, that it's really more like a library than a book. Um, mm. There are so many genres contained in there. Mm. Um, and to treat them all the same is, is, uh, is to misuse um, these beautiful pieces of writings. But I want to be at that campfire you're describing. Like I, I want, I want somebody to tell me the story that way. And I think one of the first really like one of the first moments that like broke open the scriptures for me, um, was, uh, was I in college? I don't even remember. I, I was somewhere and, and this biblical scholar, Mark Rhodes, um, he's a Lutheran. Uh, he, He's actually well known for performing the Gospel of Mark. Um, so he he did his own interpretation of the Greek, and he memorized it and and tells it in one sitting. It's about two hours long. Um, and I got to see that later when I was in seminary at the Lutheran school that I was at. Um, but but before I even saw that, I I watched him perform Galatians, and. What was really interesting was that I had been studying Galatians with my my like campus ministry. It was in college, my campus ministry um, like Bible study, um, and it was like a very fundamentalist campus ministry. And and so we had been we had been reading it in these bits and pieces, a couple of verses at a time. And I had been studying this for months, and yet I, I came um, to this event where I heard someone with passion, with, um, with drama read to me or perform to me the entire letter from beginning to end. And at the end of that, it meant something completely different to me. Mm. And, and so I, I want some of the drama of storytelling, um, is where we can find meaning. And it was then that I started to realize, okay, maybe, maybe a, you know, in my own experience, kind of cold, analytical, historical, contextual reading isn't sufficient, and that there is meaning that can emerge from a dramatization, which in its own way is very, very queer, um, to, right. to bring a little flair, a little drama <laughs> to, uh, to the storytelling. Um, but yeah, I wonder, you know, have you... I I immediately found that there was a lot of resistance in my circles to approaching it that way. Um, that there was kind of a box we wanted to put scripture in. That that being holy meant that it was a little untouchable. That you couldn't play with it. Um, mm. What has your experience with that been like? Have you been in in communities where you are allowed to play with scripture through storytelling, through poetry? Um, through expressions of queerness by bringing out that contrast. Oh man, I really want to be at that storytelling. I, I really want right? to see this now. Yeah. Wow. I can't imagine, first of all, memorizing the whole gospel of Mark. That's intense. Um, yeah, but I, you know, I don't think, I think that, you know, the young Methodist youth group, me, like that was a time where I, first got that experience of, wow, we, we really get to play with this. And like props to the Methodist church in some ways for that. Like, you know, the council on youth ministries was youth from all over New York state coming together with these like hippie pastors and planning these events for other youth around the state. And like, you know, singing fun songs while dancing to communion. And, and so I think like that was really my first experience of playing with, with the story. And I think, you know, one, one time where I saw that like young Methodist fun um, 
in stark contrast to the ways that other traditions do worship in scripture was, you know, I was, I was in Oxford for a year in undergrad and I, I, because I'm right a, a nerd, I was a warden at the chapel, which basically meant that I handed out pamphlets but wore a cool robe. Um, and and so at the last semester, the last term, um, I was preaching, and it was Pentecost. And so naturally, right, like I I asked people from different countries to read parts of the scripture in their own language. Like that was just normal, right? Like I don't know, it feels like a normal Methodist like Pentecost thing. Like yeah, yeah let's I play with it. this. Let's make it interactive. Let's have them stand up from wherever they're sitting instead of you know the one lectern that looks beautiful. like a beautiful golden eagle and and so i thought that was normal but i realized quickly that in this quiet and quaint you know very english chapel anglican chapel <laughs> this was very different and very new and and very strange um and so i you know i think that some ways like our methodist heritage and our you know our putting on of methodism has has made has given me that chance to be able to play with scripture a bit more, um, and, and only now, you know, years later, am I able to recognize like, oh yeah, that started with that one pastor at youth group that gave us mm. permission to play. Yeah, yeah, and and what a what a great affirmation of call to and a reminder mm. that like our leadership does matter. Mm. Um, that that demonstrating that modeling what it means to play with scripture, modeling what it means to queer the scriptures, um, has mattered to us. So, so, you know, there's so much potential for it to kind of have this cascading impact. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm curious in particular about, um, you know, you talk about the Methodist tradition and what's sort of held there. Um, Part of what drew me, I, I mean, like, I, I would not have picked the United Methodist Church as an institution, but one of the things, you know, once, once God brought me there through a lot of, like, pragmatic and relational pathways, I felt so at home in the theological tradition. And part of it for me was discovering that there is this kind of charismatic, um, almost Pentecostal energy um, and so that does, in, in some ways, what you're describing, this idea of like Pentecost and so many different languages and like, you know, speaking from, from your location in these like really symbolic and beautiful and powerful ways, like in some ways that does not describe my experience of the average United Methodist Church, but it does describe perfectly my experience of like the theological um, and ecclesiological tradition. Um, have you... Have you experienced that tension between like the potential for what the church is and and the beauty that you were kind of raised in in that that youth oriented space of like possibility versus the some of the stodginess of the church itself? Oh yeah, oh totally. And and I think right, like you said, the that that vision of that church where everyone's standing up from their location is definitely not like the majority of Methodists <laughs> in the US. Um, and, and I think, right, like that's, that's why part of my calling to ordination and, you know, figuring this out with my decom because they don't necessarily know what to do with someone that doesn't want to serve a church right away. You know, I, I definitely feel called to continue to study after the MDiv and, and to do more theology. And I think part of that is because like you're saying, we have these really beautiful theological roots that I, I don't think have pumped anything up to the rest of the church for a long time that I think there's, you know, it's, it's in our tradition and in our theology that God is alive and active and setting our hearts on fire and, and that we as a people are in, you know, are, are just on the edge of something. And, and I think that we have these deep roots there, but, but it, it just, it's lost its way. It hasn't made itself into every congregation in a Methodist church. And, and so, yeah, I, I definitely feel that tension between the potential of what we could be and, and the reality of what most of our churches are. But, but I have hope that we can get there one day with cool pastors like you and, and right, like one day we'll have people that are reading the stories as stories and embodying them. Yeah. Well, and that might take some some profits in pink to make that happen. Hey, hey, hey. 
So with the scriptures in particular, you know, bringing that playfulness and bringing that kind of prophetic um, energy that that weds the the traditions of um, storytelling and um, and scripture by complexifying it, um, complexifying, sure, mm. uh, as well as kind of a modern understanding of what it means to be alive in this moment and queerness, um, I did want to talk to you about a particular scripture, and you have chosen um, Jacob and Esau, uh, which is amazing, and um, I'm so excited to talk to you about this and hear your take. So um, would you mind um, just sort of walking us through the story for anybody who might not be familiar? Yeah, um, and this is one of my favorite stories. It was the first sermon I preached in high school at my church. Yeah, yeah, it was on Jacob and Esau and costumes, and um, and so it's actually... Very queer. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. And I dressed in like all white because, yeah, I, <laughs> someone said I looked like a milkman. I was like feeling my liturgical vibes um, as this nerdy little high schooler. Um, and, and I talk about this a little bit more in my book a bit. Um, this idea of, you know, Jacob and Esau in Genesis, um, right? Their father, Isaac, was getting old. He was blind. Um, and, and so in the tradition, right, we we learn that only the eldest son gets most of the father's wealth and blessing. Um, and so Jacob was the younger brother, which I definitely resonate with as the sixth out of seven children in my family. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so Jacob, right, wasn't going to get his father's blessing. Um, and, and so his brother Esau was, cause he's the oldest makes sense. Like that's, that's the way in that context, that's the way it worked, I guess. Um, and so, as Isaac is going blind, um, he's about to bless Esau and, you know, Rebecca, um, their mother comes and right. One of the very powerful women figures that we have in the Bible changes the narrative. And she comes over to Jacob and in my imagination, they're huddled in the kitchen. And, and so Rebecca is, is talking to Jacob and she's saying, soon your father's going to bless your brother and you're going to lose out. But but I really care about you and I want you to be provided for. And so this is what we're going to do. And then they, they get down to making their plan. Right. And so Rebecca tells um, Jacob to, to go out and and catch a lamb um, and and to bring it back. And she's going to cook it up really nicely and right. Like a little blue apron meal. And they're going to put all the spices on it. And somehow Esau's out doing something. He was the hunter and he's out there and, And so they've concocted this little plan and this meal. And so Jacob brings this meal to Isaac. um, And Isaac says, is that you, Esau? And and Jacob says, yes, yes, father, it's it's me, Esau. And and Isaac, maybe confused, asks back, but the the voice sounds like Jacob. And he touches Jacob's hand. And at this point, he had covered it with fur one of his mother's other great ideas because Esau was hairy. And, and so Isaac touches Jacob's arm and feels the fur and said, though his voice sounds like Jacob, his, his skin feels like Esau. You must be Esau. And Jacob says, yes. And, and he says, father, give me your blessing. I Esau want your blessing. And so Isaac gives Jacob the blessing thinking that he's giving it to Esau and Jacob leaves and he's blessed and he leaves and he runs away from home. And that's the part of the story where I'll put a pin in for now. <laughs> really? And and this is the thing that's um, that's so interesting about the scriptures is that it's always stories contained within stories. Mm. And so one story kind of like then flows into another and um, then they bend back on themselves and the promises. And um, but yeah, what a what a exciting little excerpt that is. Um, so what, I mean, when did you first encounter this text and what, what, what has it meant to you? Has that changed over time? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the first time I preached on it in high school, I, 
And some of this I've kept and some of this um, still resonates, but in a new way for me. So at first the text to me was about costumes. Okay, clearly, you know, Jacob's wearing a costume and he can approach his father who he respects um, to get a blessing unless he disguises himself. Um, and so as a young kid, you know, in high school, dealing with, you know, everything that high schoolers deal with of anxiety and like, oh gosh, what do I have to do with my future? Um, you know, thinking about this was like, okay, what are some costumes that I wear around my friends that, you know, I don't necessarily want to wear? What are some ways that I disguise myself for my family or my church? And at this point, right, it, I, I still didn't realize that it was my queerness that I was trying to hide. I, it was just an idea that I liked and could see in other ways, like, okay, you know, my friends see me as always the happy kid, but like, that's maybe part of a costume too. And there's some truth in that still, but there's still part of a costume. And, and so for me, it was really, you know, the idea of a costume and, and thinking about my mom when I was maybe four made me this airplane costume. Um, and so now this airplane costume is like my classic parable. So she she emerged from this, this dark room of creation, I like to say, out of this closet um, with these beautiful, and it was a surprise, these huge cardboard and aluminum covered airplane wings because yes, I wanted to be, <laughs> right? Like I wanted to be JJ the jet plane throwback yes. to that great right cartoon um yes jj the jet plane and um so on halloween night she strapped these giant metal cardboard wings to my arms right with old belts and i was an airplane and and so in this parable that you know has become a parable for my life story is that okay i had these awesome wings strapped on and then i ran to go outside to go start trick-or-treating and poof right like like you hit the doors and, and so the wings, the costume had stopped me from being able to go outside and do the fun things that I wanted to do. And so this really has become symbolic for me slowly and, and only recently, you know, as I was writing the book and thinking about this idea of queerness and storytelling of, wow, like in so many ways, my church and my family and my small town in upstate New York had stitched together that costume of who I was supposed to be and really what a good Christian boy was. And, and that costume had prevented me from being really genuinely happy. And, and it wasn't until I was able to realize that I was wearing a costume. So it wasn't until college that I realized there are other gay people that, that that's what I am. And wait a second, that's normal. It wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't until I was able to see the costume that, that I was able to realize that, wow, there's, there's a lot of deconstruction work that needs to go on. And, and wow, this, is so strange that this really parallels in some ways Jacob's story of having to go in front of his father to get a blessing because he wasn't who his father thought he was. And like the, the pain of having to disguise ourselves to be blessed by parents or by the church, right? Or by our communities really does some damage. Absolutely. And, and interesting um, intersections with Rebecca as well, who is mm. in her own in her own survival strategies and in her own creativity is the one who constructs the plan, right? And who mm. says, who observes Esau's hairy, take the lamb's, you know, wool and um, here's how we'll, here's how we'll do it. So on the one hand, Rebecca is creating opportunity for Jake. On the other hand, she's the one making this costume for him and instructing him to be something other than he is in order to get the blessing. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I see in that, um, from your beautiful interpretation, this, you know, uh, kind of element as well of like, not only is there the, the experience of having to put on a costume to survive, but also some of the wisdom and beauty of being able to, to scheme, to make the world survivable in a world where without that plan, um, Jacob wouldn't have received a blessing at all. And so, you know, it raises questions for me of like, is like, like, yes, we long for a world where Jacob can just be Jacob and receive the blessing. And uh, does God bless the whatever costumes we, we do put on if they, 
if they bring us into a place of freedom where, you know, cause Jacob, this is an entree into a different part of his life where he doesn't, he doesn't wear the Esau costume forever. Um, but so hmm. many people do have to, to put on a costume to survive their family home, to survive high school, to survive, um, in the world until they can take off their costumes. And is, is there blessing in that too, um, in the work of survival? Mm, I, and I love, you know, the, the way that you've put it is, you know, something that I don't think I, I would have been able to hold until seminary of being able to hold the tension between on the one hand, you know, this is something that's not really beneficial. He doesn't get to be himself. And, and on the other hand, it's also a way that he was able to survive and thrive and like holding that tension between both. Like it, it doesn't just have to be like his mother made him wear a costume and like, now he can't be who he is. And it doesn't have to be right. Like, you know, we get to lie and we're blessed because of it. And, and so like being able to hold this tension of like, there are circumstances where liminal characters in society and people at margins do what's necessary in order to survive so that then they can be blessed and like and and in their survival there is a blessing and so like both the curse and the gift of costumes is that like for me having to wear that costume on the one hand right was really oppressive but on the other hand made me appreciate the costumes and the the intensity of costumes that we as a society put on so many people and really from being inside a costume gave me greater channels of empathy for people in other marginal positions. You know, it, it gave me a greater empathy for people of color than, you know, like my straight white friends that haven't had to go through that process of taking apart one thing that taking apart ways that people see you and the way that you see yourself. Um, yeah. And, and so yeah. Yeah. I, it's so interesting too, because I think that it exposes this tension around the blessing itself. Um, mm. you know, one of the details you talk about how they're brothers, right. And, and they specifically they're twins, right? So they, they are in the same, um, they're, they gestate together and, um, the image that we're given from the scriptures is that Jacob is like holding on to Esau's ankle on the way out. Like they're so close. And it, and so this idea that, that Esau is the firstborn and therefore the one worthy of the blessing and Jacob is not feels so arbitrary. Um, you know, they were born at functionally the same time. And also why does it matter? Um, mm. and I think that like there, it's interesting because there is this narrative of like, well, God wanted to, to bless Jacob, but there was this human patrilineal um, system involved that said that the firstborn son is the one who is blessed. And so I wonder if that mm -hmm. too exposes, like we're not putting on these costumes because God needs us to put on the costumes to be blessed. We're putting on these costumes because we have constructed these arbitrary systems of who receives blessing from the church or from authority or from family and who doesn't. Ooh, and ooh. so, you know, who are these costumes really placating? Um, it's, it's not God. It's, mm. it's our broken, um, and oppressive structures. And, and can we do away with those instead? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something the story does really well is that it, right. It, it challenges the constructs that we have of who gets to be blessed. I mean, in this way, it, it seems like, well, why, why shouldn't just everyone be blessed if they didn't have this struggle, if the society didn't say it was only the first one? What if we said everyone has gifts? And, and the story really does challenge that. It says, you know, this is the way your society does it, and this is the person God's blessing, and it's not who you expect. And, and so, yeah, I think it does invite us to be part of that narrative, to say, yeah, what are the ways that we have intentionally decided that these people have a certain privilege just because of these arbitrary rules, because they hold the power and the privilege. Um, and, and it calls us to say these, these positions are arbitrary. And, and really the calling of the people of God is to challenge these. Yeah. And it sounds like for you that that call to queerness, which is given to you by God, but is um, not valued by the human structures 
um, was part of what you were asked to costume yourself out of to receive receive blessing. And, mm. and yet here you are now um, growing into who you are, saying to that same institution that wants very badly for you to wear a costume, which you could do easily, right? You could go to your district committees and you could go to the structures of the church and put on a costume and they could give you the blessing of ordination with much less fuss. And, and yet here you are saying, no, I'm taking off the, the lamb's wool. I'm not, mm. I'm not pretending for you because I know that God has already um, called me into this blessing and I'm going to, to challenge you to live into that call from God rather than to keep up this arbitrary structure of who deserves God's blessing and who doesn't. Um, and I think that that's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, that, that segues into the, the last section of the story of, you know, years later after Jacob has gone away from home and, and grown up and, had wives and <laughs> livestock and all of those strange things, um, right? Like, so all these years later, he decides to come home. But before he's going to come home, he he's out one night and, and he's in, you know, distress. He's, he's really conflicted about meeting his brother again and, and seeing his family as himself. And so as he's about to journey back, um, back to his family, which I definitely resonated with going through the coming out process in college, you know, it was, I took the train to New York City from Rochester, New York, and, and that's where I was liberated in New York City at my college. And then taking the train back was always that, 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 time of distress of I'm coming back into a place that that has an idea of me that doesn't know the full me yet and so how do I approach that old place with the full me and so as Jacob is out there right at the night by the stream wrestling he he starts to physically wrestle with this angelic being maybe God maybe an angel and so they're wrestling all night long which they're I mean just for me reiterates the importance that this is a story because how in the hell could God wrestle with a human? Um, and, and how in the hell could God not win instantly? Um, and so just in this beautiful story, they're wrestling in the darkness and they're bruising each other. And it says that Jacob is bruised on the hip by the being. And, and so this struggle of, of coming to terms with himself really bruises him. And he goes through a lot physically and emotionally. And as the dawn is coming, as the day is nearing, he says to the angel, bless me. And the being God angel says back, what is your name? And this is the first time that Jacob says his real name in order to gain a blessing. And Jacob says to the angel, to the being, Jacob. And the, you know, the being instantly blesses him, but not only that, and this is where I think, you know, trans theology has a lot of beautiful work here is, is that when Jacob approaches the divine as himself, the divine gives Jacob another name. The divine then calls Jacob Israel. The divine, right, then calls Jacob Israel, the, the foundation of, of the people of God. And, and so when we're able to come to terms with ourselves, we're blessed. And also sometimes we, we discover that we have other names and other identities that have been there all along that the divine has, has blessed us with. Absolutely. And, and it makes me go immediately to this place of, is, is even Jacob um, the name that was given to him by the system that told him he was worth less mm. um, and not worth the blessing. And yet coming to say, this is who I know myself to be. And I believe that I am worthy of blessing opens up a pathway for God to say, you are so much more than they have ever told you you are. Mm. Um, and I, and I bless that. That's so cool. Mm. Well, Thank you so much. I have, I, this is a story that it sounds like has been a thread through your life and your ministry. Um, and it's really incredible to, to kind of weave that story into yours. Um, and honestly, it's one that I haven't spent a whole lot of time with. So I really appreciate, um, you just opening up this story for me personally. Um, and, and I want to end with our, um, kind of final questions about scripture. Um, First of all, is there any scripture 
you know, when you're kind of looking at the way that we as a body interact with the scriptures in our current context, is there any part of it that you're like, you know, this gets a little too much play. Maybe we've spent a little too much energy on this. Why don't we back slowly away from this one piece that we've hyper-focused on? I, yeah, I, I mean, out of the many, if I had to throw a dart at a board, um, I uh, probably all the clobber passages. I mean, mm. yeah, like Leviticus and yeah, yeah. So I, I would definitely throw a dart there. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, can you describe what you mean when you say clobber passages? Yeah, yeah. So clobber passages, right, six-ish of them um, are what more exclusive Christians, that's the term I use instead of conservative, because I know conservative people that are affirming of queer people. So Christians who do not affirm LGBTQ people um, use these six-ish verses um, as proof text to say that God could not possibly love gay people or gay marriages or gay unions. Um, and so these six text verses taken out of context and translated badly um, are often used against us. And really, I, I would take a step away from that because I think it, it, it doesn't allow us to first recognize the lens that we're all approaching scripture with. I mean, if we approach scripture as one verse instead of, as you said, a library of genres, um, then, then we're approaching it in what I think is a really harmful and an unholy way. It, 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 yeah. I don't think it's supposed to be, you know, a, a book that can be taken one verse out of context to define the message of the whole. I think when we approach scripture with a lens of love, it changes the way we read all of it. Absolutely. Well, so in light of that, is there any part of the scripture that could be healing, that could offer us wisdom, or that you particularly love, that you feel like doesn't get enough attention, that you'd mm. love to see get a little more of that spotlight? Yeah. Oh, I love this. Um, I uh, the end of the Bible, um, right? Revelation. Um, I and so many people add an S and uh, um, Revelation. Um, it's the, the last vision that we get in Revelation is, is that image of a new heaven coming to earth. And, and, and I think that image for me has been personally powerful because the Christianity I grew up with, while still, you know, focused on this idea of social holiness, of working in our communities was very much that, you know, we're going to, we're going to get to heaven and that's the promised place. But, but instead it was really foundational for me to have this image of heaven coming to earth and earth being transformed and and, and the river I, I think the image of the river yeah. flowing from this holy city the river of life which has and the tree of life on the river that has leaves for the healing of the nations and I think just that image of this unlimited clean water for everyone and healing for all the nations I think that could could yeah, I, I'd love to see that highlighted more. Yeah. And in another nod to just beautiful storytelling, really mm. bookends the entire scriptures, mm. begins with a garden and ends with a garden. Um, and uh, Revelation, I think, is another one of those texts that um, that we have a lot of work to do to reclaim. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so maybe someday we'll have you on to talk about that. I look but forward to it. Thank you so much, JJ. I really appreciate this conversation. Um, and I really hope people do check out your book, Reclaiming Church, Call to Action for Religious Rejects. Um, and uh, look forward to continuing to be in conversation with you. Anything else you'd like to close with? Thank you so much for having me, Jonah, and for having this conversation. I'm so excited about this new pod. And um, yeah, for all the queer kids out there, don't worry. In all of your wrestling, um, there are those of us out there who are your cloud of witnesses and you're not alone in this. So I'm so glad that, um, yeah, you don't have to be alone. So reach out to me if you ever need anyone. I'm sure Jonah and Cameron are amazing and they've been really helpful to me in understanding relationships, queer relationships. We had an awesome YouTube video about that. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm just so glad to be here and thank you for having me again. And where are those channels that people can find you, DM you, um, see that 
that interview uh, on YouTube and so many more with, um, with uh, people who you've talked to. Yeah, um, you can find me all social media at it's me, JJ Warren. Um, and that's just two J's, not J-A-Y. Uh, and um, yeah, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram like that. And on YouTube, just JJ Warren. And you can see all of those interviews with other queer United Methodists and folks. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, JJ. Thanks, Jonah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Jonah and the Peacock. We hope you enjoyed it. This show is presented by The Liberation Project and produced by Wesley's Revival.